On this episode of Water Flying, we are sitting down with Greg Monroe, the son of the founder of Kenmore Air. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying. I am thrilled to sit down with my good friend, and you guys are in for a real treat. We have Greg Monroe, who is Bob Monroe's son, who founded Kenmore Air 76 years ago. Uh, Greg, thank you. It is an honor uh, to not only count you among my friends, but to sit down with you and kind of share some stories about Kenmore Air and, and the amazing life that you've lived uh, here in Seattle. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So Kenmore Air is a legacy uh, airline. It's the largest uh, seaplane operation in the United States, uh, world famous. Uh, it carries a, a huge legacy, and you have been involved in the middle of it almost from the very beginning. Uh, so I want to tell that story today. Okay, where would, you, where would you like to start? So uh, your father, um, Bob Monroe, founded Kenmore back in 1946, just after the war. Uh, and the property, we're sitting on five acres of waterfront property here uh, on Lake Washington. It looked a little bit different then. Uh, you've witnessed a, drast, uh, a, a huge transformation, but let's talk about how humble the beginnings were and, and what this how this all started sure actually there were three high school buddies um reg collins jack mines and my dad bob monroe and uh my dad and reg were kind of mechanically oriented and wanted to rebuild an aircraft they bought an old uh, i think it was like a champ or a taylor craft uh and they were rebuilding it in their garage over in uh, north seattle and their good friend, Jack Mines, had just gotten back out of the, from the military. He was in the Navy, a pilot. And he was quite interested in flying and got in touch with my dad and Reg and said, hey, why don't we start a flight school? And I don't know what got him intrigued in seaplanes, but one of them was involved <laughs> in, like, the idea of seaplanes. So uh, Reg and his family knew about a piece of property on the north end of Lake Washington in Kenmore. And at that time, it was just mostly, it was an old shingle mill, and it was pretty swampy land and so forth. And they made an offer to buy it and start this little operation, which was going to be seaplane training. And Jack Mines had the visions of maybe putting in a hotel where people could fly in and stay here and learn to fly and so forth. So that's how it all kind of started in 1946. Unfortunately, by the end of that year, Jack Mines lost his life in an aircraft accident. And that kind of turned the tides quite a bit on the future of the business. Reg kind of lost interest because he wasn't getting along well with Jack's mind's uh, wife at that time about the property and how it should be divided up and so forth. So he decided to move to California. Uh My dad decided to stay here and stick it out and see what would happen. And uh, gosh, by... The end of 1948, I think there was like 12 airplanes here. Went from one airplane to 12. They weren't all company airplanes. We had like eight private owners. The uh, Republic CB was just becoming popular at the time, or just been built in, I think it was 1945. And it became quite popular in the Northwest here. We the very up, first one in the state of Washington, I think, came here. That Yeah, that could have been. Yeah. And... Uh, Gosh, uh, by the, I think it was 1948, two years later, we had 12, 12 of them here. 12. Yes. I mean, to get 12 CBs together today would be very difficult. And right. 
And uh, so that's kind of how it all started. I mean, it just blossomed within the first two or three years with private aircraft coming in and so forth. So um, the business grew. We had a lot of GI students. That's kind of how the flight school got going. We st- so post-World War II, um, that's where the GI Bill really kind of launched a lot of businesses. So the GI Bill, I think your father was intent on flight training. Right. And, and the vi- great vehicle of that was there was a way for pilots to finance this flight training through the GI Bill. Exactly. And uh, became quite popular. We started out with a Ronca K-36 horsepower champ. <laughs> that was a miracle to get off the water. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember it. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't aware of that. But no, 36 horsepower is, is not very much. I don't know how they did manage that. <laughs> and uh, then they moved into a Ronca champ and a Taylor Craft. Eventually, the Super Cub kind of became the main training back in the early days there. The Taylor Craft and the Super Cub were the two the two and as a Super Cub owner, yes, I, I'm very yes. happy about that. <laughs> you have a good airplane there. Uh, so then uh, flight school grew. We started getting requests for charters. People wanted to go fishing into British Columbia. It was kind of the primary point of interest. Which is uh, 100 miles north? To the border. To yes. the border. Yes. Yeah. And then the popular places were probably more the excuse me, the interior of Vancouver Island, which would be another 50 miles to the interior of Vancouver Island. So the fishing became a big part of the business, flying charters and so forth. So you were in this metropolis of Seattle as it was starting to to grow into a metropolis. And you provided, or, or Kenmore Air provided access to these remote areas. Yes, yes. Which was the big attraction. It was. And then... Uh, People started moving north or buying places in the San Juan Islands, which is about 80 miles north of Seattle, a 30, 35-minute flight. Had uh, summer homes up there and so forth, so we started flying people back and forth to their homes. Became a big part of the business in the early, early 60s and 70s. And then people, this is the boating capital of the world, the uh-huh. Seattle is. Uh, yeah. People started taking their boats more north into British Columbia during the summer. So we got several requests to fly people back and forth to the boats. The owners could keep the boat up there and have guests fly back and forth or relatives and so forth. So made them able to extend the season much longer and entertain a lot more people in their boats. So that became a big part of the business. Yeah. For quite a while, they were kind of known as the Boaters Island, Boaters Airline in the Northwest here. <laughs> yeah, which was I, I would say you're, you're still kind of somewhat. I mean, that would be a big claim to fame. So. Actually, it is in the summertime, especially. We fly a lot of people into the remote places of British Columbia. So when I look at Kenmore Air, there's like these different phases of, of the business and of the history. And I think from 1947 to the 1960s were the incubator years where it was just getting going and, and getting its roots and establishing its identity and and getting its roots on this five-acre piece of property that was literally in the middle of nowhere at the time. Right. And here we are in the middle of a metropolitan area now. But in the 1960s, it really started, I think, paying off uh, as far as all the hard work started to to coalescing into something that, you know, when I look at the growth, it, it looks like there was a major growth that happened in the 60s. Well, there was. Uh, and uh, seaplanes became really popular for private aircraft. Uh, a lot of people wanted to have a seaplane so they could fly, like I say, to these remote fishing places up in Canada and so forth. And I think it was about mid-60s, 1966 or so, we became a Cessna dealer. That was a turning point. And there weren't that many. There were only like three, I think, at the time. I think so. And uh, it was a big deal. There was one year that we sold, uh, might not sound like a lot of but we sold 12 new Cessnas. (laughs) And that's, And uh, that was really fun because... Doing having flown mostly on the floats on the water and so forth, being able to go back to Wichita and pick up a new Cessna 180, 185, or 206 and fly it out here was quite a thrill. It was a big part of my early flying experiences that I really enjoyed doing. I was going to say, these are like your teenage years, your, your kind of your uh, early uh, grade school years where all of this was happening. Uh, literally grade the, school. Well, well. <laughs> well, the. How old were you in the 1960s when all this was going on? Oh, I was in my 
mid-teens or so. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Right. Yeah, kind of teenage years. Right. So growing up here as a teenager, having access to seaplanes and having all this activity, that must have been an amazing experience. I mean, I, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, especially like when I was learning to fly and building up flight hours and being able to take friends on flights just to build up the flight time. And I mean, so how forth. many kids get to do that? <laughs> oh, I know. And I, I, some of my longtime friends, you know, still remember those, those flights and where we went and so forth. And it was a real special time in my life to be able to share that with people and so forth. And it uh, definitely means more to me now thinking back on it than it did at, at, <laughs> at the, the time, time. Yeah. you know, the, the opportunity and the privilege I had to, Learned to fly that way, but it was sure fun. And, and I mean, talk about having a legacy, uh, again, with your dad. And, and I think that what people probably may not appreciate as much as I appreciate is the fact that your family made a lot of sacrifices. Your dad wasn't there a lot. He was married to the business as he, much as he was married to the family. He was. And I remember back when we were grade school age and even junior high and high school, that one of the popular things to do that my dad liked to do was take us on a picnic over like Hood's Canal in the summer. We'd load in the plane and fly over and uh, cook oysters and dig clams and so forth on the beach, go for a swim. And often he'd say, okay, that morning, let's get ready or be ready to go by one or two o'clock this afternoon. And then we'd get a, a message that, oh, a flight came in or someone wanted to fly somewhere. So that always took priority. And uh, so we ended up having the picnic at home. But being able to go on those trips is still a real memorable experience. That I know my sisters, we talk about that often, what a special treat that was to be able to hop in a plane and fly over to, like I say, Hood's Canal, get out on a private remote beach and have a picnic. It was just a big part of the magical the, times. Oh, it was. It was. And, and I can tell you, I can relate because... Um, Early in my flying experience here, we were working on a film project and uh, we took a couple of beavers with Alistair and uh, a couple of the other pilots and we went out and harvested clams off a shoreline. Oh, and, you got to have that And made a, camp, oh, and made a campfire. And yeah. 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 <laughs> and, no, and again, that's thanks to you. Uh, you made it all possible. Uh, but. <laughs> no, those <laughs> are the, the unique fun things you can do with a seaplane. That's for sure. It is. And, and so... You know, I know one of your father's few regrets, your man or your father was not a man of regrets, but one of the things that I think that I pulled out of, of, you know, everything from your father was the one regret he had was that he knew that he, he was married to the business and right. that he kind of wanted to spend more time in retrospect with the family. Sure. And uh, I'm amazed that uh, my mother put up with all that. <laughs> she did. She was a real trooper. And, uh, you know, she sacrificed a lot, but she helped my dad in the business too some. And it uh, made And it even all work. to this day, it's a family business. I mean, it is deeply rooted in the family. And uh, literally, the family starts out on the line just like everyone else, I think, for the most part. For sure. Yep. Or filling the pop machine or <laughs> mowing the lawn. Yep. We all and, started and I, that way. And I really appreciate that. I mean, even today, I think Todd's son uh, started working on the dock. Uh, he did. Yeah, Hunter's. And now he's getting checked out at an otter this week. <laughs> I just think that's awesome. I mean, there's it was. it's not a privileged experience just because you're part of the family. No, no, uh, no. No, I had to go through all the... The ranks, you know, like I said, working on the line, servicing the planes and washing them and so forth. And so, finally got to fly them. <laughs> finally got to fly them. And you were never happier. I can, I can because I know, I know you. That, that's your, your happy place. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this thing. So you had the Cessna distributorship came in the 1960s. I think that really changed the, the scale of the business. Uh, it really started to grow then pretty substantially. And right. And then there was another big uh, moment in the early 70s when you guys started buying your first beavers, which is, I think, what everyone romantically um, associates Kenmore with, including myself, is this romantic attachment to the de Havilland beaver. And that all started in the late 60s, early 70s. Correct, correct, yes. So talk about that transition, because up to that point, the biggest thing you were flying was a Cessna 185, probably. It was, it was. And no, it was a big 
boom in the business, being able to carry six people versus just three or four on a, you know, a, a trip up into Canada to go fishing and so forth. That was a, a big asset to the company, you know, to be able to have those airplanes. And we added gradually year by year, another, another beaver, another beaver. And I think it was uh, the late sixties, the military was auctioning them off. They had from Vietnam, right? Yeah. And different parts of the world, but we did get 12 that were used in Vietnam. And I think one of them or two of them are still on our, in our <laughs> fleet here, but uh, that was fun. I mean, was, we had to go look at them, bid on them, and then find a way to get them back to the U.S., shipping them and so forth. And one of the ships that got into a big storm one time, and we got word that they'd lost some of the cargo, and we we're going, oh, no, you know, because they couldn't tell us for sure whether it was our planes or not. They were all in these containers. But fortunately, they all made it here safely, and uh, we were slowly rebuilt them over the years. So I think we've done over 125 beaver rebuilds. Yeah. And and you are the the place if if someone purchases a beaver, there is no better place than to come here to have it rebuilt and restored. So. We like to think we are. <laughs> There's so, other people that are doing it too, but we have uh, I think a, a pretty good reputation. A lot of people refer to now as a Kenmore beaver, yes. or the Kenmore beaver, a so, Kenmore beaver. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of fun. So I think this is cool because I mean you guys weren't buying these from the factory. You are literally going and, and going to these Asian uh, countries to buy them out of the jungles, yeah. literally. Two of them came from the Falkland Islands. Remember when there was a yeah. skirmish down little, there? Little, 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 yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's one of them, five, 17598 is still on our fleet down <laughs> here. But we got that down in the Falkland Islands. I think we got some out of Germany, Singapore, and so forth. So, uh, and even, uh, I think, Norway or Sweden. Yeah. We've... Pulled them out down yeah. there. And yeah. and that's what's amazing. And there's a new otter sitting out back there that came out of a museum, I think, with, I a, know. with a radio engine on it still. Isn't that interesting? This museum <laughs> had to decide to move on or fill the space with something else, and all of a sudden it became available, and we bought it from a museum. So, again, I think that's fascinating that you weren't buying them brand new from de Havilland. You were, like, going and, and – I mean, going into very remote places and to to retrieve these airplanes, and in many cases they were basket cases, and and on a rare occasion there were brand new ones still in boxes, almost. Right, right. But uh, yeah, the ones we got like out of Vietnam, they were rough shape. I mean, <laughs> it's funny they still had uh, the army paint and everything, but the interiors were just trashed, trashed. Yes, yes uh, just a mess. So and- the. After acquiring this, I think all of a sudden you guys started appreciating the fact that the Beaver would become a good work airplane and then made it kind of the, the workhorse of the fleet. It it definitely did. Yeah, and it still still, it still is. is. Yeah. Yes, we're still operating several of them and rely on them daily. Yes. So I remember the good old days uh, when we there would be a, a line of Beavers just chugging away in the mornings out here, warming up. And uh, that is one of my favorite memories in aviation ever. Oh, I know. It was fun to look out. I think we had 10 of them. And they'd all kind of go out about the same time in the morning, so they'd all be warming up on the dock. Just sitting there idling, just chugging away. Just, oh. Yeah, and the sound of a 985 engine is so unique. It's just, it's And then multiply that by 10. Right, right. (laughs) So, um how did business change? I mean, in the seventies, um, it was still doing, going out to the San Juans and everything else. Uh, eighties, uh, was a pretty fast growth, uh, time for, uh, business. And then, you know, so going through like seventies, eighties, nineties, how did, how did the business transition there? Where was the customer transitioning there? Um, what, what were the changes maybe that you saw, um, in that period. Yeah, as it grew, I think a lot of it, uh, the market just grew. More people were going to the San Juan Islands, like I mentioned, a real mm-hmm. popular uh, destination from Seattle here. And then uh, Victoria, we started off flying into Victoria, Canada, and uh, that has been very popular and so forth. Uh, and then people uh, were still, you know, buying their own seaplanes and so forth. So maintaining them, mooring them here. We had 85 seaplanes here at one time. It's not 
It's like every right. inch of the of the five acres was covered. It was. And they were stacked. Right. <laughs> they were literally and stacked in the, here. 85, they weren't ours. I mean, we yeah. had like 12 or 14 of those 85. But just to think that, you know, there was 60 private aircraft owners flying all around the Northwest here back in that time was exciting. Watching the forklift uh, maneuver around and pick and place the airplanes off the platter. So they've got a uh, a platter on uh, rails that lowers into the water here and they have a forklift that'll pick up the airplanes and move it onto the platter and lower it in and watching them store the airplanes uh back when the yard was that full uh was quite a a hair raising (laughs) (laughs) we yes it it was it's fun to watch the whole operation how we put them in the water and service them and so forth and like you say, move them around on the property with a forklift. Oh, yeah. And so I think one of the big things, um, there were some really amazing times, things that happened with the beavers uh, that probably no one ever expected beavers to do. So your father famously went up onto Mount Olympus and uh, did a bunch of flights on Mount Olympus on floats, of all things. Can you... Describe uh, some of what those missions were like up there. Yeah, that was in the, the late 60s, early 70s. We were flying for U.S. geological survey teams that were studying glacial movement and recede, receding and so forth. And they did both on Mount Olympus over in the Olympic Mountains and the South Cascade Glacier and the Cascades. And they were both at 7,000, 7,400-foot elevations. But uh, my dad would just load the beaver up on the... The, the lake here with the supplies and people and so forth and go up and actually land right on the snow. On the snow dome. Uh, both both yeah. these glaciers. And it was really funny that the snow dome, like you said, in the Olympics, to take off, you literally went over the edge to pick up speed to fly. And I got to ride along on a couple of those flights, and it was definitely <laughs> a thrill. I mean, I don't know what would be a bigger thrill in a seaplane than to take off on a glacier going down over the hill, but... So it was pretty amazing because you'd have to have, like, guys spin the airplane around. You'd land uphill. Right, right. And then spin the airplane around after it was, un- probably before it was unloaded. So yeah, uh, so it wouldn't freeze yeah. uh, uphill, look, Sometime, facing uphill. Sometimes it took two or three people with a rope tied to the tail helping pull it around as, uh, to maneuver it on the snow, you know, to get it around. There wasn't enough prop blast to get it around otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And then... I, you know, I've landed on glaciers on skis and things, but I can't imagine being on floats and putting the power uh, to that on the snow dome and starting the descent down the mountain uh, on floats on snow. Right. On the top of a mountain. <laughs> no, it, it, like I say, it's, it's just definitely a thrill. It just, <laughs> I wish we could still do it, but... Uh. So do I, because I would go with you. I can guarantee you. <laughs> we would go do that mission. So there were a lot of missions like that. I mean, even with the Seabees, your father was taking copper mines up into Canada. And again, I mean, he was kind of the guy that would do anything. <laughs> He was definitely a pioneer in a lot of <laughs> aspects of the seaplane flying. It's one of the interesting stories. One of the first trips they did up there was with the Seabee in the, the Canada Glacier. Mm-hmm. And I think they're about 5,000 feet there. And one of the early trips, uh, he was going to drop two people off, and then there was uh, another person with him that were going to go back out. They got the, He and the other person got in the plane, pushed the throttle, and it wouldn't move. So... They, they both of them got out with the other two there. And my dad pushed full throttle, but he's outside pushing on the strut of the plane, trying to get it up on the step. <laughs> it starts to move. He jumps in and they take off. But just to think of that plane, you know, with the throttle going wide open and they're on outside yeah. pushing oh, just to get it going. It's so. amazing. And and these are the stories, you know, uh, that are, are the stories of pioneers and, and the people that really cut the way for us to do all of this. And, uh, I mean, he even strapped torpedoes to beavers. Oh, yes. Yeah, we <laughs> flew for the U.S. Navy for quite a while. They had a torpedo test range just up on the Canadian border up here. And we'd fly torpedoes back and forth <laughs> that they were using on the test range up there. So it was kind of fun to see this plane come in with a big torpedo on one side of the float. <laughs> so, I, you know, again, and that's what's so important about this conversation is to... Uh, uh, 
for people to preserve this uh, history because um, the innovation and the kind of missions that were done here. I mean, um, you think of Alaska bush pilots being kind of the the hardy guys doing the impossible, and the impossible was being done here in Seattle. Yeah. We're, we're the urban bush pilots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's remote areas. I think I, I, maybe that's important to cover, too. Even today, as we sit here in the Seattle, the greater me- metropolitan area of Seattle, uh, we can go out to Lake Isabel or go up to the San Juans and you can or go up to B.C. And in very short order, you can be in extremely remote areas. That's one of the beauty of seaplane flying or being able to fly around here in the seaplane. Yes, like you said, uh, there's just pristine lakes you go to, like Isabel and uh, Hood's Canal. There's still very a lot of remote beaches there and so forth. And then, like you say, the San Juans. And it's, uh, it's really special to be able to have the freedom to fly and go to those kind of places. And that they still exist. Exactly. Especially with the growth that I, I've even watched in Seattle in the last couple of decades it's been it's been amazing well we certainly appreciate what you and the seaplane pilots association has done to help preserve all this for us it's been very important and i will continue to as long as i'm able as long as there's air pumping in my lungs (laughs) so thank you so i think one of the 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 keys to the the success of kenmore that people may not realize also is so you know, I think everyone associates with the airline, uh, the airline that has been created and, and that is thriving today. But also, you guys have a very capable maintenance shop. Um, and I would say the restoration side is a whole different side of the business than the maintenance side. So you have private owners, plus the, the maintenance of your own fleet. Uh, but you'll have people come in here for maintenance. But then there's a whole thing where you'll take a haul, you'll take a you know, a, a, a recce, I'll call it, you know, a, a hall that's coming in that was found someplace and sure. you guys will do a rivet up restoration. Right. Right. It. That's been a big part of our business is rebuilding aircraft. And, and you've done it for some pretty famous people. as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have Harrison Ford was in here about 12 years ago and actually bought a, a beaver from us. We re- rebuilt it for him and painted his colors. And he actually got his seaplane ready right while here. he was here doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So and Kenny was, G. Kenny G. Yeah. Uh, quite Another, a few people actually. There have been. Yes. That uh, have their own private beavers. It's been quite interesting. And of all places, they come here. Again, I really think that speaks uh, volumes for how well-respected you guys are. Um, and then you have the engine shop, which is, you know, one of the best places to have a 985 rebuilt. Right, right. Uh, which is a lost art in itself, kind of like tailwheel flying or seaplane flying. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, and my dad started, as, like I say, in the business as the mechanic. He learned to fly once they start, had actually After started he- the business here. So the, the maintenance part has always been a big part of the business. It's part that he really enjoyed and promoted. And we like to think that uh, we do a good job. People bring their planes from Alaska down to have them worked on and so forth, where there's places up there much closer, but it's like coming here. I think we've developed a good reputation. So that's been a good part of the business is the maintenance. And we also have an avionics shop, a paint shop, Interior shop, upholstery shop, <laughs> yes. We aircraft, can do just aircraft sales. I mean, yeah, we can just about do everything rebuilding air, rebuilding aircraft to to, to new. Yeah, basically, it's better than new. Yeah. And and you've actually had several grand champion Oshkosh airplanes uh, come out of the shop here as well. That's I mean, been, I can't I can't even count how many grand champions I know of. At least half a dozen that have come out of the facility here. Right, right. And uh, that's been fun to hear that. I know, was it last year, two years ago, that two of our planes were competing against each other where we felt kind of (laughs) bad. It would be nice if it was just one back there. But uh, no, it's really nice to to receive those awards and so forth. I had an owner uh, with a Kenmore Beaver. We were in Maine in September at the Greenville International Fly-In, and he uh, had an airplane hit his airplane and it did a very small uh uh indent in in his under his wing and it was the tail of a 172 had gone under his beaver in the wind and it made a little crease in the wingtip and he was adamant 
that the airplane come all the way back, back here, here to be worked on. to get worked on. <laughs> and I really, well, again, think that speaks volumes uh, to how well the shop is respected sure. with these owners. And I think it's neat. We were talking about kind of the spokes of the wheel um, of the business because the interior shop does all the interiors for the fleet of the airline airplanes. The engine shop works on the engines. And right. so you're, we were talking about you're almost your best customer. You, you, know, you have your best customer uh, right on, on site here. <laughs> right. No, it's it's interesting the way it has all developed, but it is a real asset to have all those different shops in one place here to maintain the fleet and keep it going. And I thought one of the things that was interesting, uh, going back to the beginning of the business, just kind of jumping around here a little bit, but when your dad was uh, trying to start the seaplane base, the town, which there wasn't much of a town here at the time, because it was pretty darn remote, but it was interesting that in 1946, uh, they were concerned about noise. They were they thought seaplanes were dangerous. It would interfere with the fishing, and they were worried that it would over commercialize this remote part of the lake. And those are the very same things that at the Seaplane Pilots Association we're fighting today. Isn't that amazing? It's still the same <laughs> issue. Uh, uh, yeah, we have we've been operating on Lake Union downtown Seattle, you know, which is a city lake, basically. Yeah, right downtown. And there's been seaplanes op, been operating off there. Well, Boeing started yeah, operating. Boeing, the very in, first Boeing airplane what, ever. I think mm. the late 30s or something like that. Yeah. But uh, over the years, you know, the growth around there, and nowadays the kayaks and the canoes and the paddle boards and so forth, they're, they're uh, presenting a big obstacle to seaplane flying, but... Well, that's a a fight that I got very engaged in. So uh, Lake Union, which is literally right at the base of uh, the Space Needle downtown, uh, has been where the airline terminal has been. So the airplanes fly from here on Lake Washington, just a couple minutes over to Lake Union, where the terminal is. And that's where most of the passengers will embark or disembark off of the aircraft. Sure. And that's a very historic lake. As we were saying, literally Boeing's first airplane uh, was a seaplane, right? And it flew off of the lake. And matter of fact, every year that I come here, uh, it, this is kind of a tradition to go over to the plaque, which very few people even know exists, right? Over right. there on the lake, and it's a shame. Sure, sure. How obscure it is, and how how it's not celebrated as much as it should be. This is the beginning of the largest aircraft manufacturer in the world, and we've got a park. I don't think it's bigger than the room we're sitting in <laughs> and a little brass plaque. And that's all there is. There. Right. We've often thought it'd be fun to build a museum down there in remembrance of the seaplane or dedicate to the seaplanes and so forth Yeah, on, on Lake Union there if it could work out someday. But as the city has grown, one of the big challenges has been, and I've seen this even in the decades that I've been coming here, is that the amount of boat traffic, uh, that used to be kind of a sleepy lake. I mean, you had the houseboat community on there, and there was commercial activity. Yeah, there was a lot of commercial. So, but it wasn't. I don't think recreationally as popular no, as we see no, it now. That's that's what's really taken over in the last ten, fifteen years. It was and industrial. It was kind of a redu- an industrial area in the houseboat community. I don't think it was considered glamorous back then. Today, it's very chic oh, yeah. to have a houseboat down there. <laughs> uh, but at the time, I, I think it was kind of like the low rent district. <laughs> No, I think you're you're right. Yeah, that's the way it was. But and now the recreational boating has become uh, a challenge because you have to operate. And thankfully, we've actually done videos, uh, advocacy videos, with the local officials, and you guys have worked tirelessly to maintain positive community relationships and try to navigate the challenge of sharing the waterways with this huge growth of recreational. Exactly. Yes. Now we've wanted to be good operators, good neighbors, and so forth. So, But it's been a challenge. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> it has. And once again, thanks for your help and, you know, helping us navigate through this. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the big things that I wanted to achieve out of this conversation was I have shared so many kind of intimate moments with you and, and moments of, of just utter joy and many of them in the cockpit of a beaver with you. Yes. And I never have seen a bigger smile on anyone's face 
I mean, except for maybe yesterday when I got out of the otter after being left seat in the otter. <laughs> I know. I was going to ask you about that. You know, I heard you through the otter yesterday. I want to know how you like that. Uh, I, I am. My cheeks are still hurting. <laughs> but there uh, there are. What I've always respected about you and enjoyed about the time I've got to spend in your presence is this am- amazing passion and love you have of flying seaplanes and and enjoying where where you live and getting to do this. And I think that you enjoy sharing that with people and you enjoy being in that pilot seat out there in the environment, you know, as much as any or more than anyone else I've ever known. Right. It's really been a great job. And I often say, you know, it beats working. <laughs> you know, to be able to have an office view, as I refer to, you know, that's yeah, looking out the yeah. cockpit every day, you know, 360 degrees and looking up and down and everything. It's just, it's been a real special career for me. And I think if you look at Chuck or if you look like Tim Brooks, or if you look at John Gowie, uh, Alistair McPherson, I think anyone that has spent time here, um, that that's kind of a universal feeling. Right. It really speaks volumes. Yeah, it has been. And we've had several pilots that have been with us for many years, you know, 25 years and so forth, which I think is testimony to how they enjoy the job and flying seaplanes in this part of the country. It's incredible. And, and again, to have an owner, I, it's important to see the owner enjoy being out there as much as the line pilot <laughs> or more. <laughs> no, I've, I've really enjoyed it. One of my special favorite times is flying someone who's been apprehensive about flying or didn't want to get in the plane and so forth and trying to give them a real smooth flight and actually at the end of the flight saying, oh, wow. You know, I'd love to do that again, or that wasn't as sure bad as I thought it was going to be. And, you know, just getting people over the fear of flying has been a, a fun part of this job. Yeah. So what are your some of your fondest memories as, as we talk about the fun part of the job? What, <laughs> uh, there's so many from flying celebrities and, and having astronauts and other stuff come through here. What, what are some of your favorite memories? Oh, one of the earlier ones was... Uh, my earlier flying days was in the, I think, the early 70s. We got a call from Walt Disney Studios that they wanted a seaplane in California for a Walt Disney TV show episode. And I got to fly the plane down there. It was the first time I'd probably been south of Portland, you know, <laughs> to be flying down in California and so forth. And landed at a lake close to Long Beach, where they were going to disassemble the plane and haul it into the studio and suspend it from the <laughs> ceiling and put all the fake background and so forth behind it. And as soon as I landed on this lake as a reservoir, gosh, about three police cars came zooming down, and they wanted to know what was going on. And supposedly the studio had worked this all out ahead of time, but supposedly. the police didn't yeah. know about it. And so my first day down there, I'm in the city in a police car trying to explain what's going on, you know, and... They're real suspicious, you know, that I might be a drug runner or something like that landing in this lake. But it was just a fun experience to be in Hollywood, to see how a film was actually being made. Uh, Like I said, they had this fake background in the background. They had the actors in the plane, and then they'd shake the plane for turbulence, you know. See, all that was a a fun, fun experience. And then they they did a lot of the filming for that same show around here. Uh, over on Hoods Canal and up in the Cascades and so forth. But the interior shots were all all done down there. But that was a real fun experience. Yeah, and amazing the lengths that they go to. Uh, We've worked on a couple of the James Bond movies. Uh, The last one just used a 185, and I was helping them shop for airplanes. And and we've had it. And they've been very prolific within the James Bond series. We've had a lot of seaplanes, a CD, uh, Twin Otter. There's been all kinds of... uh, uh, seaplanes in the James Bond movies, but you've had a lot of celebrities come up here to fly as well. And there's been a lot of television shows. I mean, I, I remember seeing Andrew Zimmerman on on the Cooking Channel or or whatever <laughs> uh, flying here. But the sure. Travel Channel. But I mean, there's been a, a large number of celebrities. Harrison Ford. You mentioned, you know, not only bought an airplane, did flight training here. Jimmy Buffett. We were talking about a story with Jimmy Buffett, which I think everyone famously associates with seaplanes, but. 
you actually you actually had a kind of a, a great experience with him as well. Sure. He was doing a concert over in eastern Washington at an outdoor venue. It's called The Gorge. And he wanted to fly over for the concert. And this was the day of the concert, just a couple hours before he was supposed to be performing. And uh, we're flying over. And he wanted to circle the venue before we landed. There was a river right below it that he could get out and get up to the venue. And it was really exciting to fly over and see, you know, thousands of people sitting down there waiting to see him. Your cars lined up, people trying to get in, so forth. Here, I have Jimmy Buffett right here. You <laughs> right know, next circ- to me. <laughs> yeah, circling around. Um, things like that were really fun. Magical moments. Oh, yeah. Another one I had real quick is uh, we got a call to pick up John Wayne's daughter and her husband off his boat up in Canada. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I we'd been having fog in the water. Me. We'd been having fog in Seattle that time of year, and I didn't want to miss the flight, so I went up the evening before just so the plane would be there, so there wouldn't be any delays. And I was going to stay at the marina where we tied up, and I just walked over to the boat just to let them know that I was the plane and pilot. Whenever they wanted to go in the morning, would be fine. And the Duke came out on the back and said, "Hey, do you need a place to stay?" Uh, whoa what what an offer so i said well sure even though i had another place he said come on aboard so i got to spend the night on the the wild goose with with john wayne with john wayne and his family and sit and have breakfast with just the three of them in the morning before we left on the flight it just you know being able to do things like that just so we didn't even talk about this, but so we just had David Johnston on the show, and he worked with the S-44 and the Gooses down at Catalina. Yes. And John Wayne was a frequenter down there. And then he also uh, had a relationship with Maureen O'Hara and Charlie Blair down right. in the Virgin Islands. Right, right. So, I th- again, I just love how these, cir- you know, the, these... Uh, Stories come full circle. So we have John Wayne with seaplanes in Catalina. He's in with seaplanes in the Virgin Islands. Sure. And now you get to spend the night with him on his boat, his, 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 his small boat. Yeah. <laughs> we won't say. No, uh, another fun one was to, uh, I got to fly Catherine Hepburn one day. She uh-huh. was in Seattle doing a play and wanted to fly up to the San Juan Islands and have lunch. And I was talking to her on the plane, you know, have you ever been in a seaplane? And she said, oh, I did many years ago and i didn't want to ask her but i couldn't help think was that was with howard hughes probably yeah. you know just <laughs> just things like that you know talk about the connections of seaplanes and so forth but yeah <laughs> it's the, it's the amazing connections and she actually was a very avid sheller and would fly with mark futch uh in southwest florida and he would take her shelling again it's all these uh, stories and he oh. would, had stories of just taking her out to look for shells on the beach. Yeah, no, she went up to this island. There was an island that uh, some friends of hers owned in the San Juans, and they had invited her up, even though they weren't there. They had a uh, caretaker and a cook that prepared lunch and so forth. And while we we're there, we were walking around the island, and her uh, stage manager and assistant. Were with us, and they both quit about halfway, and she kept going. I went with her. She was just a real trooper. I mean, she was picking up shells on the beach and just admiring everything. It was fun. But while we were having lunch, it was kind of fun. Uh, she was talking about when they were filming the African Queen. Uh-huh. She said that uh, Bogey and I would go out flying, and the director, John Houston, would get so upset thinking was something was going to happen to us. But just to hear... Catherine Hepburn say bogey, you know, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, like and it's so nonchalant. Flying, <laughs> yeah, flying in an airplane. And it's just, uh, once again, a, a real highlight. That's And that's from- the importance, again, of this podcast is, is the fact that you've had these conversations with these very historically significant people and, and how down to earth they usually are and how happy they are to be with you in an airplane. Yeah. Uh, I'll just add one more. No, go for that, it. Um, there's a... Small choir from Africa called the African Children's Choir. There's about 20 kids in the choir from about 7 to 10, 12 years old. Most of them are from orphan families and so forth, but they tour the U.S. to raise money and so forth. And uh, they were in Seattle, and I went and heard them, and during the show they asked the kids what they want to do when they grow up, and this little boy in the front said he wanted to be a pilot. And I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't it be fun while they're here if I could maybe get him out to go for a ride in a seaplane? And I went and talked to the choir director, and she said she appreciated the uh, invitation, but she said they don't like single anyone out for special attention like that. 
I was walking out of the car, kind of feeling bad, talking to my friends about it. And the more I thought about, let me go back in and see if they all can come out. <laughs> so uh, I did. And oh, she thought that was great. And two days later, I showed up with all these little kids and got to fly them. And the little boy's name, the one to be pilot, was Joseph. And he was in the co-pilot seat next to me. And while we were flying, I said, you know, Joseph, sometime I'd like to visit your country. And they're from Uganda. And I didn't know where you got. I knew it was in Africa, but I didn't know north, south, east, west or anything. I was just kind of making conversation. And he said, oh, if you come, I want you to come to my house. I'd like you to come to my house, something like that. But he just planted a seed. So I kept in touch with the choir director. And about 10 months later, after they'd returned to Uganda, I was on a plane headed over there to see if I could actually end up at Joseph's house. Oh, that's so cool. And... uh, I did and got to have a meal with his family and broken plates and all kinds of things. <laughs> but uh, it started a real relation for me for not only his family, but Uganda. And I've been there, oh gosh, I think 22 times since then in the last 12 years. So it's uh, it was just a spinoff from one little flight in the seaplane talking to this little kid. But, yeah. And that's the magic. I mean, the connections you make, the experiences. Yeah, and, and that was and, a life-changing flight. You know? and, and I think that's, you know, that really kind of resonates with this thing is, you know, for the romance that everyone has with these mechanical machines, uh, the mechanical machines are just the facilitator to go out ex- and experience the environment and to have the relationship that I've developed with you. And the real magic is not only going out to these beautiful remote places, but also the the people yeah. and the relationships that you develop. Oh, for sure, for sure. It's been fun. Um, I've gotten to fly four generations of families over the years here. And that's just been a, a real treat, you know, to, to know these people. And it's, you know, it's like going back to summer camp every summer. <laughs> these people come back on a seasonal basis and so forth and just watch the kids grow up and so forth and have their own kids and, it's been a real special relationship I've had yeah. being able to fly with some of these people. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about uh, Goldie Hawn <laughs> and, and a very young Kate Hudson. Right, right. And uh, so you got to fly Goldie uh, I, and a very young Kate. <laughs> yes, she was at a summer camp up in Canada with her brother, actually, and Goldie wanted to fly up and visit him. And uh, would. Her assistant made the reservation. She said, uh, could you make arrangements for Jody, for Goldie to get from the airport to your facility? And they, she said she doesn't need anything like a real special limousine or anything. So I thought, ah, what the heck? So I went and washed my car, drove down and met her at the airport and said, I'm your driver and your pilot today. <laughs> but that was a real fun experience. She was so excited to be in the plane, a real fun passenger to have. And what's really funny that the, again these small the, the the how small the circles are uh, that the six degrees of separation within the seaplane world as Kate Hudson would go on to film a little movie called Fool's Gold, which was supposed to be Key West but filmed in Australia, which right. was was an interesting scenario. Sure, and they used a Cessna two hundred six that that I had lost. It came back after the movie and it sat in California forever, and I had a picture of it on my office wall when I was so intent that I wanted to buy that airplane and I could never afford it as affordable as it was at the time, uh, because it had been full of corrosion from the movie. Um, but Rob Saravolo, who was here a couple of days ago, founded Tropic Ocean Airways with Nick, Nick Veltri. They bought the 206 from the movie that I wanted to buy. Uh. They started Tropic Ocean Airways, which is one of the fastest growing seaplane services in the world and uh, flying from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas and and all over uh, the Caribbean down there and even up in New York as well. And we were talking about Matthew McConaughey, who starred with Kate in the movie, was recently down in Miami filming a movie and he flew with Tropic in the 206. And he said, you know, I, I did a movie once where we had an airplane, something like this. We flew in the movie and they were like, yeah, this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I just love these, these connections and these circles that form through this community. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And you've flown astronauts and test pilots, a uh, little intimidating pilot. I know Mr. Yeager. Yes. 
yes, a couple of years ago, had the opportunity to fly him up to Canada. And uh, it was a real fun day. I mean, he was in the co-pilot seat, but I was so nervous. I think I sh- all the flying that this gentleman has done and the records he set and so forth. is He's going to be watching every movement I make and so forth. You know, <laughs> I better be, keep everything straight and level and so forth. But he was just a real pleasure to be with. Very talkative, very friendly and so forth. And it ended up just being a, another real special day that I could think back on that experience. But... It was fun talking to him, you know, about his some of his experiences and so forth. And That's great. Think that- so what are some of your favorite places? Uh, we talked a little bit about your kind of your, your favorite places. If, if you're flying uh, for yourself today, where are you going to go on a perfect day? Well, that's a really good question. There's a lot of just beautiful places around here to fly to. Like I said earlier, you know, just flying over to Hoods Canal, finding a remote beach on Hoods Canal is just a real fun thing to do, especially in the evening as the sun's starting to set and so forth and getting back just before dark. But uh, as far as just a beautiful place, uh, there's several in British Columbia. One of my favorites is Princess Louise Inlet, just north of Vancouver. It's about an hour and 30-minute flight from Seattle, but you can only get there by plane or boat. So uh-huh. it's, it's real, real remote. But up at the end of this inlet, there's this huge, big waterfall, Chatterbox Falls, and uh, these big rock walls coming down all around it and so forth. It's just so pristine, and you just think, wow, there's no other place on earth like this. And to think that you can be there in an hour and a half. An hour and a half from here. Yes. And you're in Canada. Yes. From here. Exactly. And and you go up, it's about 40 miles, I think, up up the the channel to the top where the falls are. But you get up there. There's no other access by, like you said, either by boat or airplane. And it is really remote. But there's a beautiful dock there. Yes. And a path that goes up to the falls. Exactly. Yeah, there's a, a park that's there, you know, dedicated... There's a seaplane dock, and then people can tie their boats up. It's a popular boating destination, so forth. But you just sit, like, tied up to this dock, the big waterfall coming down. There's snow-capped peaks all around you, and it's just it's just beautiful. It's hard to describe it. Yeah, and that's, like, less than 60 miles outside of Vancouver. Right, 60 miles north of but I always, you know, I have to kind of chuckle to myself on days that I've been up there. You know, so often we're there for lunch, you know, I take a lunch and sit out on the dock or walk up the trail by the fall and think, you know, where I ate lunch today, you know, three hours, two hours ago, I was going yeah, to this I was in Canada in the middle of now nowhere. I'm back home in Seattle and so forth. And to be able to do that all in one day is amazing. And then to do it a couple of days a week, just it's been so much fun to be able to do those kind of things. And the San Juans are gorgeous. If you haven't been up in this part of the country, uh, flying the San Juans is, is number one, just amazingly beautiful. It's also pretty treacherous as far as the water below you. <laughs> it can be a lot of current and so forth, moving around up there, getting into there the docks. There is big water here. Yeah. <laughs> and but, uh, uh, very challenging weather conditions. It can be. Uh, it's yeah, we live in the convergence zone here, so you never know what's going to happen. But usually the summer months, May through September, it's pretty darn nice. It's hard to beat. And it's amazing. Like yesterday, we had a great day for flying. And today, we woke I, up and we were under a gale warning. Ex- <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's tough to run a scheduled airline with conditions like this. But We, we were down in the lobby um, just... Uh, working actually uh today and it was amazing all the customers calling in you know is the flight running well we'll tell you in an hour you know? right <laughs> right that's often the case this time of year you know we're on hour 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 by hour basis whether we're going to go or not because the the fog or the ceiling you know can change so quickly you know 15 minutes it can be i've seen it liable. yeah <laughs> And uh, the rain showers that come through and so forth. Sleet. We had some sleet earlier. Right. And like I right. said, yesterday was a beautiful day, and, and we were going to lunch, and there's sleet falling on the, the car. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's February. And, yeah. Or, well, no, it's March now Right. in, in uh, Seattle. So what have we failed to talk about that we don't want to make, that we don't want to miss in this conversation? What, are the, what is the either the most profound experience, the most important thing that you can pass on to a seaplane pilot, other than they should come 
uh, get this experience and maybe consider working here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We're always looking for good seaplane pilots. <laughs> We're waiting for you to apply. <laughs> well, I thought that was my job interview yesterday. <laughs> I, it could have been. I have to talk to the pilot you were with and see, see what his report is. So uh, what, what have we missed? Have we missed anything that we absolutely don't want to fail not to mention? Um, I think that it's important that this, this company has been uh, incredibly resilient at survival, uh, that you've adapted against a lot more, uh, we'll just say, challenging business conditions, and I think most people understand. Right. No, a lot of people from the outside look at it and think, wow, what a fun business. You know, it's like Disneyland every day or something. <laughs> but like I say, the seasonality has made it really tough. You know, we have right now was about 20 planes. And during this time of year, four of them will be flying five of them a day. So what do you do with those other ones? And this little, the C word, the COVID thing that came along, shut down Canada and Vancouver is a very popular um, airline route. For right, you. right. We weren't able to fly to Canada for two years. I mean, you went f- from a hundred plus employees down to eighteen to twenty. I think it was overnight. Yes, literally. yes. And uh, and you're still here, and you've made it over seventy five years, and through adapting, through uh, converting. Uh, a large amount of the fleet to turbine aircraft. Right. Uh, going to the PT-6 to be more neighbor-friendly uh, with noise. Uh, again, uh, leading the way on the advocacy uh, that you've done as well uh, as an organization. Um, there's been a lot of adapting to the different kind of business environments that you've had to endure. Oh, it has. And one of the things uh, you talk about adapting is just the, the different seaplanes that we've experimented with over the years, you know. Uh, like I say, from starting with the Ronca ta- Champ, uh, the Tailcraft, the Super Cub. We, uh, the Cessna 172, we had a Cessna 150 on floats for a while. The Cessna 180, the 185, 206, maybe I mentioned this already. But yeah. uh, we... I uh, had a Twin Beach on floats here for a while. We operated a Grumman Goose for about five or six years. I wish I would have been here for that. Yeah, That was that was really fun. Uh, I got my wheel rating in the Grumman Goose. <laughs> How many people do their land rating in the Grumman Goose? <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't recommend. recommend. But that was really a fun plane to fly. Yes, you know, just, it is. Uh, often think, oh, it sure be nice if we still had that, you know, those two engines and those oh, rattle the, the, the so Grummans, we just had, uh, we did an episode with Doug DeVry, who has the uh, twin PT6 powered Grumman Goose the right, other night. Right. And uh, again, there is a romance. Me, I, I have a affinity to the Grummans, uh, the big flying boats from the, the Goose, uh, the Mallard and the Albatross. And, and again, they're, they are special. They are. They are uh, just know. like the beavers here, though. I mean, the beavers here have such a evoke such a, a a part of the history of seaplanes and aviation that is important to preserve, and and you can experience it here. Right, right. Um, so I I want to uh, take time to do one very important piece of business in the in this conversation, and that is you have personally been so I'm going to get all upset. Uh, uh, impactful on my life as a pilot, and probably more than you even realize. I started coming up here in the early 2000s, and you and I had many conversations, and right. we would go out and fly, and, and you would make airplanes available for me to go do photographic and video work. And and I think every year since then, except for COVID, I've been here uh, year after year, and it's the highlight of my year to come up here well, and to spend time with you. And, and this, and Thank this you. facility. Thank you. And uh, you guys have been so supportive of the Seaplane Pilots Association to kind of expand the experience. We brought up 65 people a couple of years ago for our member trip. And you guys hosted our member trip. And far beyond anything I could have imagined, you guys made, numer- I think, three otters available for us to fly out to Paul's Bow right. for the day for the group. And you hosted us for the entire week. Uh, we recently did an amphibious safety video, which you guys contributed uh, very uh, generously right. to. 
Uh, I think you've got uh, uh, probably 10 lifetime members here. You've purchased lifetime memberships. You've supported the Seaplane Pilots Association and our efforts. Uh, Kenmore has been a leader in helping us do our advocacy mission and preserving and protecting uh, seaplane flying for everyone. Well, Steve, thank you. That's very nice of you to say, but sure, appreciate your enthusiasm and what you're doing for the Seaplane Pilot Association so we can keep enjoying doing what we're doing here. It's, it's a very important part of it. So thank you so much <laughs> for coming out yearly and being a part of it all and sharing your time with us. And an I've enjoyed this talk today. Yeah. Thank you. It's been an honor. It always is. And thank you for allowing us to go out yesterday. Uh, I hope that this has been half as enjoyable for you, the listener, <laughs> as it has been for us getting a chance to sit down and, and have this conversation. Please uh, share the uh, uh, show uh, with your friends. We'll keep uh, bringing more to you. There's so many episodes. We could probably do a year's worth of episodes here at Kenmore because there's so many stories to tell. Greg, thank you. It's an honor to call you a friend. It's an honor to be in your presence every time and to have shared so many great memories. And thanks for taking the time with us today. Steve, likewise. Thank you so much. Okay. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.